Good morning. It is good to be back. I would have rather had been here last week. You would not, though, so I'd be grateful that I was not here. Um, had a bit of a food poisoning incident, five-day incident, but uh, lost a little weight, so I'm happy about that. Um, probably re-ate all of those calories this week, though, not going to lie. So um, we're talking about depravity, so maybe that's just a confession is a good place to start. So grab your Bible. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and we're going to look at a whole three verses today. So we have a lot of ground to cover, and hopefully we'll get through the first verse and make it through the other two. Um, my favorite two verses in all of 2 Corinthians, and if I'm honest, the two passages that I picked 2 Corinthians to preach through, I ended up not preaching either one of them. So uh, the, the first one was the eternal weight of glory passage that Jacob Daniel got to do a few weeks ago. So I was really, you know, I was glad that he got the opportunity to do that because he did an excellent job. It was a good, he, he pulled out things I didn't even think about. It was great, but I was a little jealous because I wanted to preach that text. But I was like, well, at least I get 1 Corinthians 5, 11 through 21. And then uh, in God's providence, he gave that one to Tim instead. So uh, I didn't get to preach either of my favorite texts. So what I decided to do was re-preach the last verse of what Tim preached last week. So I'm sorry, it's not his fault that this is my favorite passage in the New Testament. But uh, it does set the stage very nicely for what happens in chapter 6. So there's some really cool passages in chapter 6 that I'm going to have a lot of good uh, entertainment preaching through as we get further into that. But I didn't want to hit that unless we have solved the issue, first and foremost, of what it means, what potential is there, to receive grace from God in vain, to receive grace in vain. So what I want to do is just read the three verses, and so that you see what I'm talking about, then we're going to kind of back up and think about, from Paul's perspective, what he's talking about, and so that at the end of the day, you can make sure that you do not receive God's grace in vain. What does it mean to receive God's grace in vain? So we're going to pick up in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 which is kind of the concluding statement of the previous thought, which I was also transitioning into the new thought. So we're going to start there and get the main idea. For our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Working together with him then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain, for he says, in a favorable time, I listened to you, and the day of salvation, I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. So he's quoting the Old Testament there in the first part of chapter 6, and he's referencing a, a, an oracle from Isaiah that's in the midst of their suffering and pain, God has appointed this day where he's going to restore the nation of Israel. So he's using that scenario as a way of saying a day's coming where God's going to speak favorably. And during that favor favorable moment, because think about what was Isaiah writing? Do you know the Old Testament context of Isaiah? He's telling God's people to do what? His main idea is repent or die. And they chose they chose die. They did. So Isaiah's writing in a time where things are not going poorly. I'm sorry, they're not going well. They're going very poorly. 
And if you know Isaiah's calling, this is the story where he sees the Lord exalted and the, the angels on the side saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The earth is filled with His glory. That passage, and then who shall I send? Who will go for me? And Isaiah's like, me, 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 me. You know that passage, here I am. Send me. And then God tells him what the mission is. And the mission is basically go preach to a people who are not going to hear. Go, go get them so sick of the message that they get tired of hearing the good news of repentance towards Yahweh. That's his message. And so there's not a favorable time during the bulk of Isaiah's ministry because God is punishing them. They've reached the point where repentance is even, it's too late. You are going to exile. You are going to be destroyed. But Isaiah still has hope. Isaiah still prophesies of the future, still looks forward and says a favorable day is coming. And when that window comes, don't miss it. You have this opportunity to repent. You have this opportunity to come back to the Lord. Now, Paul is using that story from Isaiah as basically the framework for his call to the church of Corinth to repent. So remember the scenario there. Paul had planted the church. He'd done ministry in the church. And then he and the church had a major falling out. We've said this a number of times just to refresh your memory. And so Paul had left the church. He had gone one time to try to reconcile things that went very poorly. They dismissed Paul publicly. And rather than fighting and standing up as the apostle that he was and showing a, a demonstration of power, instead he leaves in humility. He leaves in humiliation and goes away brokenhearted. And we see that Paul has a difficult time doing ministry in other places because he's so broken about what was going on in Corinth. He writes this letter. He finally, the context of this book, is he had finally gotten word back from Corinth that they had repented. They had changed their mind. They had turned back to Paul. They had changed their heart. They had repented towards Paul. He receives that message. Before he gets there, he writes this letter back to them. Now, knowing that even though the church at large has welcomed Paul, there's still some rough edges around the reconciliation. You ever made up with someone and you're still kind of mad about them, mad about what they did, but you're not supposed to be mad anymore because you forgave them? You know what I'm talking about, right? You forgave them out loud on paper, but not necessarily in here. And so you're still angry and you're pretending not to be, but it's showing anyway, all right? So Paul's in that point in the relationship. He's still got some hurt feelings. They still have some hurt feelings. They're still not 100% sure Paul did everything right. I mean, if Paul had just done his job better, maybe none of this would have happened in the first place. So even though he's writing to respond, I'm so glad that you forgave me, that we're together again, there's also a watch your heart. You still need to make sure you're repenting. You need to clear up that mess going on in the background. There's still this idea of exhortation going on in the letter. And so that's why we see all of this work about Paul defending his ministry. Now, he's going to kind of reach the climax of that next week when we get further into chapter 6. But he's basically saying that all of this suffering that I have done is proof that God is working in me. And rather than disqualifying me, instead, that should qualify me. In fact, the fact that you got upset about that made me wonder if everything I had done in that church was actually in vain. Now, have you ever put a lot of labor into something and then it just exploded in your face? 
Right? All of us in some way or another have that scenario. It's like I built a greenhouse for Anna this year, and I was really proud of myself because I used all reclaimed lumber. I spent $100 on the whole project. She had these awesome plants growing up in there. And then one of our sheep and a goat, little pair of uh, hellions that work together, they busted through the plastic, and yeah, no more plants in the greenhouse. And it's like, there's months of labor in that. Water? It's not a lot of money going, but it's like, there's a lot of blood and sweat, and there ended up being tears, you know, <laughs> over this greenhouse. You pour into something, and it doesn't go well. You get frustrated. Or in ministry, we see this all the time. And if you've been part of Church of the Square long enough, you know there's people we have invested time in. There have been someone you, you poured time into this person, and you loved on this person, and you prayed for this person, and you met this person where they were, and you did everything you can to minister to this person, and then they walk away from it all. And there's that sense that everything I do, was that all in vain? I was pouring out the grace of God. I was demonstrating the grace of God, and it went absolutely nowhere. That can lead to great discouragement in ministry. If you've been on the mission at all with Christ, you've had this experience. You know what it's like to be discouraged because your work has been in vain. And then even another question we often ask ourselves Maybe a fear that some of us have we don't want to share if we're hanging out with the super Christians because it might make us feel like we're not measuring up. But we worry that maybe we're the ones who the work has been in vain over. Is that I know all these people have loved me and worked in me and, and done all this stuff with me, but deep down I know where I am and I, I'm worried that maybe everything that's happened in my life was all vain, that it's not going to go anywhere, that I'm going to be one of those people that in the end walk away, and I received God's grace in vain. So what I want to do this morning is unpack what it means to receive God's grace at all, and therefore, what it means or doesn't mean, or how can it be possible to receive that grace in vain. You see, that was Paul's worry. We appeal to you, in verse 1, not to receive the grace of God in vain. Well, who's he writing to when he says this? This isn't just unbelievers on the street. This is being read in the context of a church where hopefully we would make what assumption about those people? These are believers. They believe in the reconciliation of the work of Christ. Everything Paul read in the last two paragraphs, this change, this new creation that we become in Christ. So let's unpack what's happening in the gospel. So verse 21 is just an awesome verse. This is one of those verses you should memorize. The problem with verse 21, though, is it uses a lot of pronouns instead of proper nouns. And so if you're not good with grammar and you read this verse, you might not have any idea what it said, even though it's one of the coolest verses in all of Scripture. So we're going to read it from more of a Southern English perspective rather than from that Greek. If you've been in Wednesday nights, we've talked a lot about how in Greek they sometimes... In intentionally made things hard to understand. That's just how their language worked, and that was considered good Greek. Uh, well, we're going to do it in good Southern English. So let's look at verse 21 one more time and make sure we know what's going on. All right, for y'all's sake, God the Father made Jesus the Son to have our sin, even though he didn't sin, so that in Jesus, we Christians could become the righteousness of God. Does that work any better at all for you? 
So there you go. So for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So in theology, those of you who want the fancy terminology, so some of you care, this is the best biblical explanation of what we call double imputation. Now, who just got excited because of hearing that word? Man, yeah, some of you did. Yeah. Double imputation. I hear that. I'm like, oh, man, praise the Lord. I want to sing something about the great power of Jesus now. I just want to sing a song. Double imputation. It's actually really good news. It is, in a sense, it is the gospel. It's why the gospel is good news. So let's unpack what's happening. For our sake, he made him, so to be clear, God the Father made Jesus the Son do something, sent him to do something. So in this case, that is to be sin, who knew no sin. So to be clear, Jesus is going to become sin, yet not be a sinner. That's very important that we know that. Back up, let's do a little bit of Trinitarian theology. How many gods do we believe in? One, and that God manifests himself through three relationships distinctly. And what are those three relationships? Father, Son, Holy Spirit. How long has it been that way? Always. How many gods are there? One. Okay, and there's those three relationships in God. Now that God has done a work for salvation in us. We call this the gospel. Part of that entails that the second person of the Trinity, Jesus himself, became a human being. And that human being, we're told multiple times, was like us in every respect. So did he go to bed at night? Did he have blood flowing through his veins? Did he have a soul, a human soul? Yes. A human body? Yes. He was like us in all respects, save one. What's the one? He did not sin. He was perfect. God sent his son down here to be like us. We've read about this a lot in Hebrews on Wednesday night, so that he could be our mediator. He could be our savior, our sacrifice, our high priest. He had to become like us, but rather than sinning, he didn't sin, but he took our sin upon himself. Now, some people struggle with the theology at this point. But how can you be guilty? How can you take guilt in someone else's action? You know, and the fact of the matter is, is this is really not very complicated at all. Have you ever had someone dislike you because of your association with someone else? Like, they're, they're mad at you just because you're friends with the person they're actually mad at, right? Your relationship, so say your spouse does something, and now someone's mad at your spouse, but they're also mad at your whole family, aren't they? Your last name can start becoming the taboo. You see what I'm saying? We share guilt in all sorts of ways. We have an expression for it, guilty by association. All right, and this is just in a very base level, not deep, not complicated sort of way. We are guilty just in relationship to someone else. Now, let's think about it in financial terms. If you have a man and a woman, and one of them has a lot of money, and one of them has a lot of debt, and they get married, uh, what do we do with the debt? It comes into the relationship, though, doesn't it? All right, we can join obligations. We can transfer obligations. Regularly, this is part of human nature, this is part of how we understand the world. We're saying that in our relationship with Christ, we bring a lot of debt to the table. And what does Jesus do to the debt 
when we bring that debt to the table. He takes the debt, he claims ownership over the debt. Now what we mean is that Jesus took the punishment of the law. If you want to turn quickly, you can. In Galatians chapter 3, we have another explanation of this. Chapter 3, verse 13, it says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse. That's what he did. He took on himself the consequences of our sin. This does not happen for everyone. This happens for those who enter into the relationship with Christ. You follow what I'm saying? So to have that sin removed, it's got to be forgiven in Christ. And so Christ forgives it in relationship to us. We come into relationship with him. He forgives our sin. Another way it's described, and I love this one in Colossians chapter 2, it says he canceled the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. We've talked about that many times before. If we had a list of everything you've done wrong or your pages from the book of deeds that everyone will be judged by, they have been torn out, nailed to the cross. They have been claimed by Jesus. This is the gospel. So that's the first imputation. We said double imputation. The first imputation is your sin, the ownership of that debt is transferred to Christ. And what does he do with it when he gets it? He destroys it in two senses. He destroys the sin and he destroys the consequence. Now this is very important. We need to unpack this clear. Well, let's fill in a blank. Our sin is taken by Christ. Our sin is taken by Christ. Now, when we think about sin, I want to change your definition just a little bit. We have a tendency to think about sin as something that you do wrong. You've committed a particular action, and God didn't like it, therefore you have sinned. You can think about sin that way, but that's like if you got a children's dictionary, and you took that to college, and use that for all of your word definitions in college, technically, the children's dictionary is not wrong, right? It's the correct definitions. But what's it missing? Depth, maturity, really the breadth of what a word may mean is not really contained in the children's dictionary. And if you think about sin in terms of some particular action that you did, and doing that action was a disobedience before God, and that's what makes it sin, then it's not wrong, it's just that's the children's dictionary version of the idea. Sin is described a little differently and a little bit more powerfully in the New Testament and in the Old than that narrative. And so think about it more like this. I get this from Ephesians chapter 2, 1 through 3. If you want to look this up, this is one of my favorite texts. It says that we're dead in our sins, and in that sin we walk following the course of this world, a course, a path. What's the whole concept of a course or a path? You follow it rather than get in your all-wheel drive vehicle and go off to the side. You, you follow the path that presumably you didn't make. You're just going the next step along the journey. Sin is more about being on the path than it is about the particular things you do on the path. Let's think about David and Bathsheba. You know that story from the Old Testament, King David, the man after God's own heart? Did he wake up one day and say, you know what? I want to kill my best friend. Is that what happened in David's life? No, that's not what happened. Did he do that, though? He did. He killed his best friend, one of his best friends, 
and a lot of good soldiers along with them. Um, well, just he just feel like it one day? He just decided to commit this sin? Well, no, you know the story. That's not how it goes down at all. Instead, the story starts off with him being lazy. He sent the army off to battle, and he's the king of the army, the commander of the army. When you send your army off to battle and you're the commander, what do you do? You go with him. He did not. Stayed home. I'll send them off. They do their thing. Then he goes up on his rooftop and sees a, not a beautiful woman, he sees his friend's wife bathing on the rooftop next door. And rather than stop looking, he keeps looking. Committed another sin. Progressive. Followed a step. But then what's he do? He sins for her. And we're not going to get any more explicit. You know what they do. She gets pregnant. He panics. So he has Uriah brought home and hopes to make it look like the baby belongs to Uriah. That doesn't work out. So instead, he's got to solve this problem now. He's just following this path. And what's the next sin along the path? Now it's time to have Uriah murdered. Along with half of a little squadron is all going to die for David to commit cover up this sin. Did he just commit individual sins there? No. He got on a trajectory and started committing sins. And what sin was he going to do next? Whatever sin was on that trajectory. This is one of the problems we have with sin. Once we get on a path, it's not this uphill path that takes a lot of energy to keep going. It's more like a downhill avalanche or snowball rolling. And the further down the path we get, the more likely we are to do sins we would have never been willing to commit before. But now we are, because we're on the path. But that's not even all Paul has to say about it in that text. He also says, not only are we doing that, we're worshiping idols. We're making sacrifices to idols. We are following the prince of the power of the air. We make sacrifices to idols all the time. If we define idolatry, you know, a lot of us, we want to say anything we put before God, but it's not that. It's anything we worship. Anything you make a sacrifice for at all, that's a type of worship. That's a type of idolatry, and idols never ask for you to sacrifice everything on day one. They ask you to sacrifice a little money, a little time. Then you sacrifice a little more money and a little more time. Then you sacrifice some of your relationships with people. You start to sacrifice things you should have spent your money on. You start to sacrifice aspects of your life, and before you know, you've sacrificed way more than you would have ever sacrificed before. It's progressive. We start sacrificing, and all because we just... We got on this path, this little path starts leading us into sin, and worse than all of that, Paul says, we're indulging in the sinful desires of the flesh. Do you know why you sin most basically? Because you want to. And every time you feed that sin, you want to do it more. The Bible's concept of sin is not just that you commit certain things. It's not that you, here's a list of things, every time you do that thing wrong, you've sinned. It's you're in a lifestyle, you're in a framework, you're on a journey, you're on a trajectory that all of it is sin. And the deeper down that trajectory you get, the worse the sin becomes, the greater the consequences become, and the harder it is to get off. Have you ever tried to quit sinning? There's some particular thing you struggle with and you try to get off of that truck, you try to quit doing that sin. Well, what happens? It seems like you get right back on it, doesn't it? See, the Bible describes sin more in the concept of bondage, to death. It's all-encompassing. But here's what we're saying in the gospel. Jesus isn't just forgiving us for having done those things. He's conquering the very power of sin itself, meaning 
Because of the gospel, you can get off the path. Because of the gospel, you can worship something different. Because of the gospel, your desires can be changed. He made him who knew no sin to be sin. He took the power of sin from us. So our sin is taken by Christ and we are forgiven of all trespasses. These are really two different concepts. The power of sin is removed and the guilt of sin is removed. I know sometimes the last person to forgive you for something you've done wrong is yourself. Isn't it so hard to walk away from the guilt, the shame, the embarrassment, the humiliation of our own depravity, of where our sin is? Here's the reality of the gospel is that Jesus has taken even that guilt from us. He has taken the very power of sin and the consequence of sin from us. But that's only half of this imputation. So the sin itself, the power of sin, the consequence of sin, all falls on Christ. Why? So that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. So third blank there, we receive the righteousness of Christ. So we get His good name. We get His good credit. We get His good deeds. We get counted as righteous. If you ever ever heard the doctrine of justification by faith, you get declared righteous immediately upon receiving the righteousness of God. Now, most of the time, this is where this goes wrong, is people stop right there with the gospel. Your sin goes to Christ. His righteousness comes to you, you get to claim to be righteous, even though you're not, we throw that in there, because we know you're not really, you'll be righteous in heaven, but you're not righteous now, but you get to wear this righteousness, now it's kind of like you get to put on a disguise, fake everybody out, I'm this holy righteous person, I'm wearing Jesus' righteousness, and that's where we stop with the gospel, that is not what the Apostle Paul is trying to show here, we've used this illustration before, but it's, it's a little bit more like the righteousness of Christ is the Iron Man suit. Anybody watch the Marvel movies? I know some of you do. Okay. I am Iron Man. All right. Well, that's not quite, you know, we would put on the suit and say, I am Christ-like. You know, it would be a different kind of scenario. But the idea is what, is, what happens when Tony Stark puts on the Iron Man suit? Does it change anything about his abilities? Well, it doesn't change his character, right? But it does change. He can fly. He can't fly when he's not wearing the suit. He could beat up Captain America in the suit. There's no way he could ever do that in real life. You know what I'm saying? Okay, getting biased there. You follow the illustration. Wearing the suit impacts what he does. Here's the amazing thing about the righteousness of Christ. It's not just declarative. The righteousness we receive is transformative. We put on the righteousness of Christ. It didn't come from us. It doesn't belong to us. We didn't make it. But when we wear it, It starts transforming us to be like it. And if that's not happening, it's because you're not wearing it. It's guaranteed fruit. If you put the righteousness of Christ on, you don't instantaneously become Christ-like. You get credit for being instantaneously Christ-like, but the moment you put it on, it starts doing a work in you. It starts progressively. We call this sanctification, and sometimes we use sanctification as a bad word in Christian circles, and the reason is is because we all know sanctification is painful. 
It's like we all joke about not praying and asking God to give us patience, right? Because what happens when you ask God to teach you patience? He tries your patience. It's the only way to make it bigger. You got to stretch it. You got to tear it. You got to break it and let it mend. That's kind of how the suit feels. You put the righteousness of God on and it can be painful because there's parts of you it's having to kill. There's parts of you it's having to stretch. There's parts of you it's having to mold and shape, do surgery. But if you are wearing the suit, this is happening. So when Paul says, because of all of this, then working together with him, in what sense is Paul working together with Christ? He's the one preaching this gospel of reconciliation. He's the one preaching, now is the favorable time. This is your opportunity. Repent. Believe in the gospel. Your sin transferred to Christ. His righteousness transferred to you. Receive this righteousness. Walk in this righteousness. Be transformed by this righteousness. We appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. So maybe to follow the illustration, this would be like, you, know, you go to the store and you, you buy your righteousness of Christ clothes. You got your new garments. You take them back home and you put them in your closet. And you go about life. And you say, hey, I, I got my clothes. I went to the store. I, I bought my Jesus. I prayed the prayer. I've got that righteousness. It's somewhere in my closet. I don't wear it, though. Well, what do you think that means? If you bought it, you believe it, you've received it, you've accepted it, but it's hanging in your closet. What does that mean about your soul? What does that mean about you? It means you've received God's grace in vain to no end. When the day of judgment comes, you hear that trumpet, you don't get to run back to the closet. And, oh, it's time. Let me go put that on real quick before we go. That's not how that works. The favorable time was at the moment of conversion when the gospel was proclaimed, that's when you put the garment on. You don't put on the garment. All this church going, all this praying, all of this singing, all of this religiosity, all of this Christianese, all of this lingo you've picked up, all of these life patterns you've followed to try to look like one of us. If you're not wearing the garment, it was all in vain. That's what Paul's worried about in this text. He's writing to these people. He knows many of them, they've all heard the gospel. He was there. He preached it. He proclaimed it. He demonstrated it. He lived it. And they claimed to have taken it. But did they put it on? That's what he's not sure about. He's, he's hoping. He has high hopes that many of them put it on. But here's the fact of the matter. Jesus preaches this way even more dogmatically than Paul did. He says, if you're salt... How will you taste? Salty. If you're light, what's going to happen? You're going to let your light shine. You think about the salt illustration. Now, this one's really good. If the salt loses its flavor, Jesus says this, if the salt loses its flavor, it's not good for anything except to be thrown out, trampled under, under people's feet. And in other words, the salt is only good as dirt if it's not salty. Well, why is salt salty? What makes it salty? 
its chemical composition. Well, what makes it salt? Its chemical composition. So what do you have to do to make salt not salty? You have to make it not be salt. Follow how that works? So what's the point of Jesus' illustration? If you're salty, you're salt. If you're not salty, you're not salt. Let's rephrase that in our setting. If you're wearing the righteousness of Christ, painfully, slowly maybe being transformed into that righteousness, well, you're a believer. That's what we mean. That's the very nature of faith is you've put on the garment and you are wearing a righteousness that is not your own. But that righteousness is changing you. It's transforming you. But if you've believed in the gospel, but not put on Christ, then you are not a believer. And you've done what Paul would say is receiving the grace of God in vain. Well, guys, today, if that's you, today is the favorable time. Today is the day of salvation. I'm saying put your faith in Christ, not just to remove your sin, not just to get you off the hook. No, that's part of it. But to receive the grace of God in a transformative way on your life. To walk out of here wearing a righteousness that is not yours, that is not your creation, that is something that God has given, but something that will transform you day by day into what God has called you to be. We didn't fill in any of the blanks in the end, did we? Sorry, I'm tired. Let's just walk through them real quick. So because of the gospel, we are new creatures who do new works. New creatures who do new works. And this is These three reference the previous paragraph. We are ambassadors for Christ. This is what becoming a Christian means. We've changed teams. We have work to do with that team change. It says we act out the righteousness that has saved us. Our acts never save us, but we act out the righteousness that has saved us. And to bring it all together, to receive the grace of God in vain is to accept the gospel as good news, but to not walk in its power. So, the calling. Walk in the power of the gospel. Not in your own strength, not in your own righteousness, but in His, and let it transform you.